It's not often I can claim that Einstein was wrong, but I think in this case, for this one example, I think I can. And that's his uh, oft-quoted claim that doesn't know what World War III will be like, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. And the obvious implication is that World War III would be, you know, atomic and nuclear. And the reality, though, is that World War III is well underway as we speak, but for, fortunately for us, at least it's digital. It's not an analog or physical or kinetic war. But in that, you know, you have so many countries, you know, we can name very active countries. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, I have the privilege of being joined in the studio by Val Berkovici, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Chainkit. Val, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. My genuine pleasure, Des. I've been dying to have this catch up and it's so timely given the number of things that have happened in the last uh, few days even, which we'll get into in a moment. Uh, so uh, folks who've tuned in, we're going to have a great conversation with Val around Chainkit, the company, uh, what it is, who it is, what it does, where it fits in the market. But before we get into that whole exciting space of what the company does and, and everything around data protection and cybersecurity and so forth, Val, I wonder if we can do a little sideways segue and get to know you personally a little bit better and introduce you to our audience. I wonder if we can maybe just kick off with... Uh, a bit of background and kind of, you know, where you're originally from and, and what some of the interesting uh, anecdotes were around your early uh, life that sort of set you down this exciting path. Absolutely. So I always like to break the ice by a bit of a joke, which is true. I was born within a two-hour drive of Dracula's castle. So that, that would be in Romania. Wow. And as, as many cybersecurity specialists know, the Romanians play on both sides of the cybersecurity game. Historically, I think the only uh, career prospect was to work for organized crime and cybercrime. But clearly, there's a ton of really, uh, you know, people I respect tremendously on, on the you know, cybersecurity blue team side as well now. So it's, it's an interesting origin. And later on, I actually got into, you know, from, uh, from the frying pan into the fire, we actually emigrated out of Romania when I was very young. Uh, into Israel. And what that taught me, because that was in the middle of two wars, was, you know, you to be very prepared <laughs> to survive a war. We very much are in a cyber war as we speak. And most importantly, that the enemy, typically the bad guys in our case, don't play by the rules. And that's one of the key things we have to prepare, prepare ourselves for. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, I think generations ago, when we think about sort of the, the traditional warfare and battlefield, people lining up in a field in a very dignified fashion in their shining suits of armor and running each other with swords and, 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 and whatnot. And then in a later sense, sort of getting in a field in the same format and lining up and shooting at each other. Uh, it was all very civilized in, in the day that uh, that was sort of a, a thing to do. But um, that the, the cyber criminals don't line up and wait to meet you in the field. <laughs> it's not nearly as romantic as it's made out to be. No. It's, it's quite pragmatic and functional and, and ruthlessly effective, I think. And, and I, I, I think uh, despite all the, the romantic efforts by Hollywood and, and movies, I don't ever think war was romantic if you're in the field. <laughs> What uh, what were some of your early inspirations? I mean, I you know I, I'm sure that you had a lot of great support from your parents and, and and folk around you and your sphere of influence. But was there anything in particular that sort of really drove you to this and sort of gave you the the sort of the fire in the belly to to head down this direction? I think the number one thing was education. And as I learned, I was actually a very poor student unless the subject was interesting to me. And then I was a fantastic student. So I had to be, I'd say, instead of having my parents push me to do well, it was all about me being pulled into areas of interest. And probably, you know, once I got out of high school and into my uh, undergraduate college years, university years, what really drew me was, you know, computing fundamentals. So what were these transistor things that formed processors? What different kinds of processors were there? 
And very much so, what were these operating systems and how did they really enable all these applications? And understanding those fundamentals at a very early age gave me these sort of, you know, evil ideas before I even knew there was such a thing as a dark web or cyber crime as to how you could literally deceive any user running an app on a well-known operating system, on a well-known processor, is how easy it was to insert yourself invisibly into the lower layers. Then I put that aside for about 15, 20 years and went into databases and data centers, storage and cloud. And sure enough, I find myself right back into that world of understanding the computing stack intimately and understanding where adversaries don't play by the rules and effectively get away with countless cyber crimes with complete impunity. Do you know, it's interesting to say that because I, I think the bulk of people I've, I've known over my life, certainly my professional career, uh, who sort of have had a, a similar end game of getting in, into cybersecurity and, and, and physical and logical and virtual security in some form uh, in, in detail as you have, have sort of had a very similar journey. They had a very early interest that peaked their sort of their career path direction. They then kind of immersed themselves in spaces to get a bunch of very deep technical business skills and then cycled back realizing they were now ready, willing, and able and armed with the skills and experience to get right into it and roll their sleeves up and do something and sort of have that business background to put business cases and funding requests and models together to go and get permission to do projects and then be able to sit in hands on keyboard and, and drive that outcome. Um, so it's interesting you've done that. And, and I think my notes uh, uh, I took earlier, you did a, a BSc in computer engineering as well, right? That's correct. And again, that's where I formally learned the fundamentals. And I like to joke, even in the early days before I knew what a rootkit was, I'd effectively implemented one by having bugs and device drivers I wrote. So again, <laughs> I, I understood you know, how you could have severe impacts on a system, both intentionally and unintentionally. Yes, the inadvertent uh, bugs that we have to go and fix, we realized that we could have. Yeah, there's some interesting stories about that. That's a whole other show in itself. Um, and you've had some amazing roles uh, prior to this. I mean, you, you've been the CTO of, I think it was NetApp and SolidFire and, and some other exciting things. What are some of the highlights sort of from your career path that really jump out that have sort of been lifetime memories? I would say, uh, you know, I, like most engineers, I was pretty introverted in my early days, including, you know, post-university and so forth. But it was actually at NetApp where at the last minute, someone couldn't go on stage in front of, I think it was 2,000 salespeople at a sales kickoff. So they just threw me up there because I was the only remaining subject matter experts to help launch a new product internally. And literally just overnight or, or within the span of that one second when I was in front of 2,000 people staring at me, I realized that when you know your stuff, you know, when you're prepared, even though you might not have prepared or rehearsed a script, when you know your material, it doesn't matter what the audience says, you can be comfortable on stage. So that was a huge eye-opener for me that I could actually translate my technical skills into marketing and sales and, and business discussion skills. And, and that literally changed my life. It certainly changed my career. Well, that was rather fortuitous. It's interesting how some of those things become formative life-shaping experiences, isn't it? But I, I think that's a testament to you individually as a character that if you've got the wherewithal to do that and, and, and just run with it, I mean, some people just flatly refuse, right? But other people are saying, well, you know, I'm just going to take the challenge on and, and clean now. Yeah. And, and in many ways, I feel like you've kind of probably never actually gotten off that stage per se. You've just found different versions of it to to do what you do so well, which is convey complex ideas and, and simple forms that people can understand in plain English. And again, I think that's a testament to you as a character, having known you for a while and certainly followed you uh, professionally and personally and what you've been yeah. up to. Uh, and, That's become my adrenaline now, so absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to base jumping and whatnot. But although being an <laughs> adrenaline junkie, I mean, you're a, you're a Formula One fan like me, so I imagine that uh, you sit up in the middle of the night. Not now, though, although I'm sure you're into e-racing that we're sort of doing, except for the few people that are putting gamers in and cheating. But um, 
exactly. I'm sure, like me, you missed the Formula One series this year. I became a, a fan of many other forms of racing. So the the esports variety, I'd never really actively followed and kind of forced to to fill my void. And, you know, I, I was never much of a big NASCAR fan, but, hey, they were the first league to come back and be active into racing, preceding, of course, what will be uh, Formula One. So I've been watching uh, all sorts of racing right now, desperate to get back into it. And I think, uh, you know, crossing fingers in about two weeks, we should have our first Formula One race in Austria as well. Indeed, although I'm gutted that it, doesn't, it didn't normally, uh, as it usually does, kick off in Australia because it's right in my backyard. But, uh, you know, it's no secret that the world's going through a global pandemic now in, in, in the form of COVID-19, the, the noble form of, of a coronavirus. And uh, we'll, we'll sort of touch on that and, and how that's impacted the world as we sort of chat through the show. But, um, yeah, there's a number of those things that, you know, and it's, a, it's a horrific, unfortunate uh, uh, issue for the world to be dealing with. But, you know, we have jokingly talk about Formula One being impacted, but everything in the world's been impacted, and that sort of will oh, flow, yeah. we'll flow into that in a moment. Um, I wonder if we could maybe just cycle briefly back to, I mean, you, you know, in your role uh, as both founder and chief executive officer for this exciting new organization, Chainkit, um, I wonder if maybe you could give us a quick 30,000-foot view of kind of what Chainkit is and, and what it's sort of, you know, aims and focuses are and we can then maybe talk about a day in the life of, of sort of founder and CEO in that space before we sort of delve into the really fun nitty-gritty of cybersecurity and that whole world that sort of you know that you live in now so fundamentally we are what we call a military grade tamper detection or attestation technology data attestation integrity as a case may be for three distinct use cases security threat detection attack detection Forensics, which has become a fascinating field unto itself, and of course, compliance. And we're, we're serving actually a, a rare white space. We didn't expect to see this much white space in an otherwise, as you know, a very, very crowded cybersecurity market. It's it, it there's you know there's one line on the front of your website I hope it's still there now but I remember when I saw it the other day that really really kind of just brought the whole thing to a head for me and it was I, whoever wrote it was brilliant it said what is hiding behind your data and it, it's like it's the best conversation starter I've seen for a long time because like it can go in any direction um, and you're likely to when you turn a stone over in any of those directions find something well um you know the outline of this conversation was really I think. Um, when we were talking earlier, I think you described it as sort of, you know, a, uh, a conversation around cybersecurity and playing chess, not checkers. And, and, and sort of, you know, we'll get into kind of why that is the case. But um, as we were joking off air a moment ago, it's sort of in many ways, cybersecurity is one of those challenges where the first person to be able to move a, a piece on the chess board, uh, eight pieces forward and become queen, becomes uh, gets control of your environment. Um, so I'd like to delve a bit more into kind of what Chainkit is as an organization in your role. But maybe if we just start with a couple of very high-level topics around kind of just um, both cybercrime and cyber criminals and where they're at, because I think that's pivoted significantly. I think a lot of people used to think about them as kids sitting behind Commodore 64s on dial-up modems on bulletin <laughs> boards and script kiddies. But these days, you know, it, you know it, it's a profession, and there are professionally run businesses who are in the, in the game of making hundreds of millions, if not billions, in cybercrime of some form from you know, robot calls doing tax scams to, to phishing schemes. And, and, and for a whole range of reasons, I had an interesting conversation with someone the other day who said that most of the people are doing things like, um, uh, you know, uh, ransomware are now forcing their other ransomware competitors to behave well so that if they, ransom, if they encrypt your data and gain a ransomware payout, they will hand you the keys to train you to know that if you actually pay, you will get your data. And therefore, when they ransomware somebody else, 
that it's okay to pay because you get your data back. In other words, they're not going to hold you to ransom a second and third time because that disincentivizes people to pay and they're in the yeah. business of getting people to pay. And I was like, the idea of criminals telling other criminals to behave and hand keys over for ransomware encrypted data so they get paid to legitimize the market means that we are so far beyond what we thought was normal in cybersecurity that it's beyond comprehension in many ways, right? But maybe if we just start talking about cybercrime and, and, and particularly, the, I guess, the military-grade cyber weapons from your experience, because I think that'll set sort of a, the tone for where we're going. Give us a little bit of insight and kind of you know, the background of how this has come about to be a thing and maybe just your view on how you describe it when you talk to people at sort of whiteboard level of the whole topic of cybercrime and particularly how it's become sort of a military-grade cyber weapon. Yeah, that, very much so. So I like to, again, break the ice by joking that it's not often I can claim that Einstein was wrong, but I think in this case, for this one example, I think I can. And that's his uh, oft-quoted, you know, famous uh, claim that, you know, he doesn't know what World War III will be like, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. And the obvious implication is that World War III would be, you know, atomic and nuclear. And the reality, though, is that World War III is well underway as we speak, but for, fortunately for us, at least it's digital. It's not an analog or a physical or a kinetic war. But in that, you know, you have so many countries, you know, we can name you know, very active countries, the USA, obviously, but Russia, China, North Korea, Iran and Israel, a lot of the Commonwealth countries, some of the Middle Eastern countries and so forth. There's all sorts of certainly defensive but offensive attacks and capabilities uh, underway as we speak right now. And I think the best instantiation of that for business leaders is to listen to the new, not the former, but the new CEO of Equifax. So as some of your listeners may recall, in the U.S., that was a very big hack in 2017, the Equifax hack, for all sorts of reasons we won't go into right now. But the net of it is that the current CEO, because the prior one lost his job, so did the CIO and the CISO and sadly a third of the security staff. But the current CEO, Mark Begor, goes on stage regularly at Bloomberg and CNBC and all sorts of business broadcasts and reminds his Fortune 500 Global 2000 peers that the current cyber risk is from military grade, not conventional, if you will, or, or script kitty style cyber weapons. And it's because most recently, I think earlier this year, just a few months ago, after two years, and we'll talk later on about why it took the FBI that long, their investigative report was finally published and it attributed the attack on Equifax of the Chinese military cyber division. So it, there's a lot of connect connectivity. There's a lot of dots to connect here between nation state derived sophisticated cyber weapons that have been copy and pasted by cyber arms dealers and commoditized and widely deployed by organized crime now for things we read about like ransomware every day. Right. And I guess to that point, uh, and, and you know, when we were talking earlier, I think you said something to the effect that nation states had developed these military grade cyber weapons over sort of you know the last decade, I guess. And that when we think about uh, you know cyber arms dealers, quote unquote, can in effect copy and paste their weapons uh, via sort of, you know, the dark web and organized crime syndicates, which is an interesting thing because when we think about, uh, albeit that Einstein maybe was was potentially off in his uh, context of what World War III would be, I think it's almost fair to say that we are experiencing a digital nuclear war now because when when these things like, you know, for example, the, the example you mentioned just before, um, Equifax, I mean, that was a Chernobyl experience. It was more than a meltdown, right? And and particularly for the human toll, because often people worry about and obsess about the impact on companies and what the cost would be to the company. But what often doesn't get discussed is the actual impact on the humans. Because, for example, with Equifax, the bulk of people that were in that data didn't know they were in there in the first place. It didn't know the depth 
and the breadth of the information that was being kept on them. And so there was a whole bunch of interesting revelations that we had there. Um, but the idea that you can take effectively a digital nuclear weapon and copy and paste it and sell it as many times as you want staggers belief for some people because they're like, well, how, how, how can that be? It's like, how can you just give me something I can take a nation down on a USB stick for want of a description? Um, and I don't need trucks and, and trailers and, and a hole in the ground to store this thing as a nuclear ICBM weapon, um, particularly if they're available through, through dark web and we can buy them on a credit card, if you like, or, or digital currencies. Yeah. Uh, and the scale they can, they can build them out, right? So that's the other thing that sort of people don't think about is that I mean, Australia, for example, now, right now, as we're speaking, has last week declared that we are under attack. Our prime minister was on TV and declared that Australia is currently under a sustained cybersecurity attack. Uh, we haven't named the nation. We're not even pointing fingers anywhere uh, because it's possible that there isn't just one, right? This is the thing that's in the media now here. Yeah, it's like, attribution is hard. And, you know, one of the things that's important to acknowledge is that at least your prime minister in Australia is being transparent. The reality is all of the countries I named and some of the others I haven't even named are currently undergoing the exact same set of attacks. Uh, I would claim as coordinated, but those attackers have not chosen to make themselves visible yet. They're still applying some of the technologies and techniques we detect to remain stealth. So this is not isolated to any individual or just a small subset of of nations. It's, It's a global situation. It's a global war. And we've had this before. I mean, this is not the first time that Australia has come public, and, and, and there are other nations, but certainly Australia seems to uh, be comfortable with the idea of, of, of putting it out there. And I think the main reason for that is we want uh, businesses in particular, I mean, agencies, you know, state and federal agencies and councils obviously need to be aware of it, but they generally get internal briefings. But for a small to medium-sized business, particularly while we're in work from home and we're on personal Wi-Fi and personal broadband doing work outside the office, outside the normal sort of, you know, f- enterprise firewall, uh, I think it was so important to come out and say, not only are, are we under attack, it's a sustained attack and it could be multiple foes. Um, and, and and to your point before, it's like it's it's all well and good for nation states to have this capability because sometimes you sort of think that, well, you know, for, for, for individual nations to have nuclear weapons hopefully means there's some form of control, such as a non-proliferation treaty and so forth, as long uh-huh. as people don't pull out of them. But there's no such thing in cybercrime, is there? Because it's like, you know... I, I have asked for it. I've lobbied for it publicly, but uh, <laughs> not full time. And, and even, certainly not successfully yet. Well, even if we did get a non-proliferation treaty in the same way we do with nuclear weapons with cybersecurity weapons, that then assumes that the bad guys are going to behave well, right? And, and of course, there's a never-ending list of people who are in a situation where they may just want to make some quick bucks and become a bad guy and are willing to blur the lines. And I guess that's really where ChainKit comes into its forte, isn't it? Because it's like... You don't really need to know who the bad guy is. You have a capability and a methodology and a platform that will detect them, and then you can classify them later as once you can actually detect That's and respond right. to it, right? I think the connection to these headlines is emerging actually quite rapidly in real time with us for our business, where it's not just now national security and defense agencies that are realizing there's a lot of aligned incentives to create public-private partnerships with private sector businesses and other you know, non-government organizations to cooperate, you know, co- cooperate, coordinate on all of these cyber investigations, but very much law enforcement agencies are also seeing the, the value of public-private partnerships where they can assist in more rapid investigations since so many of their investigations now are all digital and, and sometimes even involve cryptocurrencies on the payment side of these crimes. There's one that we were talking off air just prior, and I thought I'd just mentioned, but you know, one of the latest mega breaches was something like 254 police departments or police stations or police force uh, agencies. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the data set goes back over a decade. In fact, I read something this morning where uh, somebody has done some analysis on it and some of the data may go back two decades. And, you know, so Equifax was horrific. There's been some other significant ones as well. And there's been, you know, breaches of major cloud platforms, major uh, social media networks and, and, and gaming networks. And the, and, and the list goes on. It's almost one of those things where um, the list of people who haven't been breached is far shorter than the list of people who haven't been breached. <laughs> Sometimes right? that's an yeah, easier way to look at it. That's um, true. But this recent one, you know, kind of leads me to there were two things on your website that I also made note of that I was reading some stuff around. And, and you had two points, which is, Let's detect hidden attacks faster, which I think is a no-brainer because that links directly to the business problem. But also, I was going to sort of get your thoughts around the idea of what you talk about when you think about how chain kits, hardened systems create sort of this chain of custody and, and around the terms of surround your data with protection. And I guess when you think about you know, 250-odd police organizations, particularly in North America, with 10 years of data being breached, this data had been cleansed and, and, and run through a significant team of people who came from, I think, a journalism background to, to make sure that they were in many ways like the WikiLeaks, putting stuff out there that wasn't necessarily going to lose lives, but also highlight some of the issues. Yep. This goes back to anything, whether it's banking, finance, wealth management, transport, logistics, aviation, your core remit of surrounding data with protection. I wonder if you could sort of maybe give us some insight into kind of you know, how chain kit applies that hardening of that infrastructure and the environment around it and, and addresses that challenge of not just detecting the breaches, but also then being able to sort of you know, avoid them happening in the first place by getting early detection response and, and get away from that scenario that you could have 200-odd organizations in the police industry have 10 years of data breach, which I don't think anyone's going to come to grips with for a long time. Yeah, yeah I like to set context here because you know we are effectively no longer in the era of measures you know taken by one side and measures taken by the other we're definitely in the in the cyber risk era of active countermeasures which means that when you're being attacked by an adversary they're no longer just using conventional techniques they're actively poking and prodding at your defenses specifically as you would in general warfare you would take the defenses down first you take down the early warning systems first and then you can act with impunity you know uh, on your enemy's domain and that's precisely not what a subset but what the majority of either nation state or, or organized crime attackers do nowadays. And what that means is that generally they, they know how to make themselves invisible in your environment because they do need some time to do reconnaissance on where your key digital assets are and then to be able to, you know, to act accordingly. And they do need to operate invisibly with impunity for that, that dwell time, as we refer to it, sometimes for hundreds of days, 200 days on average has been independently verified in most financial you know, organizations and institutions. And so what they do is they, they cover their tracks very, very effectively, very, very well, using some tools that are actually so valuable, they're often not open sourced, but again, for the cyber arms dealers, they're only available on dark web marketplaces. And, and uh, the, the countermeasures are things that organizations are simply not prepared for. We find most defense teams, blue teams, are simply not ready for these countermeasures. And once you reach a certain level of maturity where you're done with the basic measures, it's time to focus on countermeasures. And that's an ideal place for Chainkit to fit in. You termed this really well earlier on when we were talking off the air along the lines of the uh, the whole sort of, you know, chess versus checkers uh, analogy. And this is a game of strategy rather than just tic-tac-toe um, and, and reactionary uh, for, for the obvious description of the two games. But um, you described it as needing to be a cyber general uh, and your approach to playing chess with this and, and, and anticipate the adversarial 
uh, activity and, and, and with countermeasures. Uh, and I think there was a, a number you gave me, which is something in the order about 39 to 40% of attacks undetected. And, and the need to be prepared and prepared to react as opposed to be reactive. I wonder if you could maybe sort of talk about that in, in, in sort of a bit more detail around kind of what that means for an organisation who often does, you know, like even for some of the, the high-risk, high-profile organisations like banks and wealth management and insurance and asset management and any sort of FSI or, or state agency, federal agency, they're high risk, but they don't always have the wherewithal and the capability and the funding to to be as well prepared as they should. So when, when we sort of think about it from the point of view of being a cyber general and being capable of playing chess and anticipate this, how does that conversation play out when you sort of try to describe that to people? So what's really fascinating to me is if you take a look at the, chrono- at the chronology of an attack, there's obviously many steps, you know, before the attack, there's always an exploit or two that kicks off or catalyzes the attack. Then there's many, many steps in what we refer to as an attack chain that are coordinated. But that 39% figure you quoted earlier on, that's only discovered after the damage is done, so post-mortem effectively for the attack. And it's only done by you know incident responders and forensic investigators, which are often one and the same. So if you're a general, you know if you're basically a CIO, a CISO, or perhaps just leading a security operations center, You've got these amazing people, you know, this amazing as sometimes we refer to human capital and assets and resources at your disposal, but you're applying them in a very predictable, sequential way. So why not take those firefighters? Why not take those incredibly skilled incident responders and forensics investigators and enable them with tools that you can apply at the beginning of an attack chain and basically cut the head off the snake that then, you know, then and there. Uh, and begin to contain damage as it's happening, sometimes through multiple simultaneous attacks if you're a large organization, as we referred earlier, and and be able to you know effectively get ahead of where you are, be able to assign attribution much more quickly than you otherwise would, and most importantly, be able to conclude a forensics report much more efficiently, much more quickly, and, and much more conclusively, as opposed to lots of reports which are submitted uh, with incomplete or abstract conclusions that, as we saw, can take years sometimes post-breach to actually finally triangulate all sorts of indicators and forensic artifacts and deliver. Uh, we have technology that enables all these key actors to be able to do their jobs you know, faster, better, more completely than they could before. It's, uh, it always reminds me of when I'm with organizations and we sort of get into this topic, I ask them when the last fire drill was run. And they're like, oh, you know, we, we usually do one every three months or every six months or at least once a year. And, and then I ask them who owns them. They're like, well, it kind of, you know, usually there's fire wardens and HR take care of appointing those and training them. And, and I'm like, and, and how do you train and document that? Well, you know, we put stickers up on the wall of the nearest exit and we'd sort of do these these pre-runs with the wardens and then we get the team leads and then we do a whole building. I'm like, okay, so you do that for one of the biggest risks of the organization in a physical sense. When did you last do a cybersecurity fire drill? And they're like, huh? <laughs> you know, um, and who are your cybersecurity fire wardens? And, and you know, and, and all of a sudden these little lights start going on, these little eureka moments or aha moments are like, oh God, we hadn't thought of that, right? And then you start playing the same thing. It's like, well, if you're going to have a fire drill for a physical risk, or if you're going to have, let's say, in some cases, I'm sure in the, you know, like U.S. schools, you're going to have a, an active shooter risk or a terrorism mm-hmm. risk. These are things people prepare for because they're tangible, they're visible, they're, they're, we, can, we, can, we can see them and kick them and drop things on our toe. Um, but I do love your punchline on your website, which says that uh, don't be the next headline. And I guess, 
I'm keen to get your your sort of take on the preparedness, where we are in this evolutionary curve, because every 10 years we seem to have the cycle of, you know, a, a risk comes along as an incident, people deal with it and it goes away. And, you know, we've seen this in the likes of the, the GFC driven by the homeland crisis. We're now dealing with COVID-19 with the global pandemic. These big things come along and people deal with them and then they sort of human nature forgets about it. And so I think cybersecurity is at the point now where people are so punch drunk that they don't quite know how to comprehend and deal with the scale of the problem. And invariably, they may be the next headline. But I do love that. I'd, I'd love that to sort of be a T-shirt with the, the chain kit logo on it, so sort of don't be the next headline. But as far as preparedness goes, I mean, what, what's your general sense of where we are in different industries as to, you know, readiness and willingness and ableness to sort of address these things? And Because I think, you know, I'm seeing such a varied level of capability. I'd love to sort of get your view on it because you're so close to this. You're, you're literally on the bleeding edge of it. There's a lot of great commentary available online that I'm more than happy to pair it with regards to maturity, InfoSec, cybersecurity maturity is a definition of evolving from being reactive, as you say, to some of these incidents towards initially compliance driven. So when you treat compliance as more of a check, I should say less of a checkmark exercise, but more of an indicator of precisely how to prepare. And then you actively test those preparations you make and you actually have a risk-based approach that's sort of the height of cybersecurity and FOSEC maturity. And one of the most tangible things is not do you have a security operations center or a team or a managed security provider, but as, as one of our mentors recently uh, commented, do you have audit trails or merely log files? Meaning, you know, are all these key indicators, a lifeblood of a security analyst or forensics investigator or compliance officer, are these merely files with implied or assumed integrity? Or are they true audit trails where there's authenticity, there's lineage, there's provenance, and it lets all of these key people you have in your organization do their jobs versus be forced to second guess the actual origin of the data and the derivation and authenticity and then triangulate the data just to make sure it's in, you know, intact and accurate, the veracity of the data. So it's as simple as that. You know, do you treat your audit trails seriously or do you merely have a collection of log files of dubious quality? And I think, you know, once you can get past that, you dramatically accelerate and enable all these other people in your organization to do their jobs. As we said, do them, you know, much more rapidly than before, more completely than before, uh, and certainly improve, if nothing else, all that, the, the empathy of these organizations, you know, let people actually be proud of the work they do and, and enjoy the work they do versus have it be toil, as Google likes to say, you know, that, that is always uh, necessary to avoid in, in a modern, you know, digital transformation organization. Indeed. And, and you, you mentioned before the, the response that the FBI had, that I think you said something to the effect of two years with regard to um, yeah. the Equifax hack. And I guess one of the things that in the, the whole sort of chess analogy that we were sort of taking around the strategic focus that this needs brings to mind the fact that, you know, one of the best ways to learn to play chess is look at past games by famous players and, 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 mm. and replay their moves. And and, and one of the things I taught our kids, particularly my son who, is, who loves chess uh, and I can't beat him anymore, um, was <laughs> we would play a game and we would note the moves and then we'd play it backwards that, that depending on who won and lost. We'd sort of, it wasn't so much about who won and lost, it was more about what we learned in each of the moves. And I guess this is in many ways a, a direct uh, analogy for the likes of an FBI coming through and not so much doing a cleanup but that post-game analysis of, okay, what happened, what can we learn obviously want to go and chase down some bad guys, but can we share those insights on how did this come about? What could have been done to avoid it? So to let post chess game analysis to then allow other people to replay that game 
in a virtual sense and learn from it and learn what to avoid? Because I guess this is sort of comes back to one of the challenges that you probably have, which is, you know, why ChainKit? What is ChainKit doing so differently? And I, I think a lot of what I've seen so far is that capacity to provide very strategic insights and, and look at some of that, you know, kind of, you know, post-game analysis and a, and a chess analogy. Give us some sort of insight into that two years and what took place for the FBI. You know, what, what were the steps they went through and what are the, some of the big things they had to deal with to kind of unbundle it and unwind it and what were some of the findings they had that sort of, you know, you can sort of play out on a daily basis for an organisation that, that don't want to be in the next Aquifax? Right, and there's actually sort of a public angle to this I want to cover as well as a private behind-the-scenes angle. So the public angle fascinates me because I've been involved with corporate communications professionals in my career as well. And it seems like even with fairly strict disclosure laws that are GDPR derived, obviously, in Europe, and we've been quite progressive here in California with CCPA, there is a mandatory requirement to disclose within one or two weeks. And the initial response, you know, the, the, the respective lawyers have gamified this, where regardless of the breach, regardless of the brand recognition of the victim organization and the scope of the breach itself, the initial response is cookie cutter, which is, we, you know, we, we've, we've had a breach. And we don't think any you know, sensitive data has been leaked, and we're looking into it. And Or sometimes they're even more bold, and they say there has been no you know, sensitive data leaked, but we're still looking into it. And my question publicly is always, how do you know? What is any shred of proof or evidence you have of the scope or size of this breach? All you've got is basically the first cockroach in the kitchen at midnight when you turn the lights on. And you haven't basically you know, turned the lights on and seen all the other, others that are scurrying off into the corners of the wall right now. So that's the fascinating public view is we always see, whether it's weeks or months afterwards, often you know, Friday afternoon at the end of a news cycle, the follow-up disclosures by these companies saying, oh, by the way, there was quite a bit of private information, whether it's PCI for consumer or PHI for health data leaked. And oh, by the way, a month after that, we found out that, you know, a third party supplier was involved and, and they were a major contribution to this leak or, or breach. So the, the trickle effect of releasing information publicly is something I find fascinating because the upfront claim is always wrong and unprovable. And I'm always, you know, getting back to the deterministic nature of what we do. We know when things happened or when they didn't, you know, quite deterministically. And I think it should be incumbent upon all these organizations to basically say, look, we don't know the scope of it yet. We're investigating. But, you know, publicly, we shouldn't be talking about or making these claims of, you know, nothing is leaked and then correcting ourselves a month later. So that that's one of, one of my pet peeves, if you couldn't tell. But what happens privately behind the scenes is also quite fascinating because all these organizations now have to go back to key indicators of compromise and key artifacts, forensic artifacts that are that are left to investigate. And it does come back to this binary question, which unfortunately is always or most often answered in the negative, which is, okay, I've got, you know, configurations and baselines and I've got log files. And there are dozens upon dozens of log file sources. There's network logs and firewall logs and intrusion detection logs and system host logs and application, and of course, transaction logs. You can, you can name dozens of log sources. And every one of those log sources essentially has implied or assumed integrity. So what takes these organizations so long is they've got to go effectively record by record, log, log line by log line through these indicators and artifacts and say, hey, does this feel authentic to you? Are we going down the right path? Or are we being led down the wrong path, deliberately manipulated by our adversaries to stall for time 
to throw us off the, the center of the trail and to effectively extend the time of our investigation to the point that either we never reach a proper conclusion or by the time we reach it, it's so far after the fact that they can redeploy these same tactics and techniques against us or our peers within certainly easily a one or two year time frame. So Indeed. what happens publicly in a contrast to what happens privately, which is much more mundane but frustrating, fascinates me. And I've, I've gone back to this, one of my earliest realizations early in my career post-university. I actually worked for the Canadian federal government as a contractor, and it became quite clear to me that you could be incredibly transparent with regards to where tax dollars go to, exactly how they're budgeted and ultimately allocated and to whom. But there were all sorts of reasons, some legitimate and many, many, I would say, political and illegitimate, to not expose that level of transparency. And it's really fundamentally the same way today with regards to small, medium, or very, very large breaches, is that fundamentally these are zeros and ones. And as long as you're applying the right tools and techniques and your people are trained and incented to do the right thing, you can get to very, very precise attribution with very deterministic, you know, with strength. But we choose, you know, other priorities as leaders. We choose not to do these things for, you know, perhaps some indirect as well as direct reasons. And this is why the whole field of digital risk management is still so vague, has a standard deviation that's unacceptably large versus getting to be as precise as the zeros and ones of silicon that it can be. So that leads me to my next obvious question. I guess let's talk about ChainKit. And, and I mean, it's described as a software as a service company that builds cybersecurity solutions. Maybe walk us through the, the, the technology stack from sort of foundation upwards. What, why is it so different? Uh, how is this approach uh, unique and, and, and like, you know, able to, to mitigate most of these, these core risks you're talking about? Uh, and, and we sort of delve into some of them examples of, of it being implemented and where it sort of plays into the into the various spaces. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'll use sort of a, a company that's a bit of a competitor to ours, but it's mostly viewed as a pioneer in the integrity industry. As we've discussed before, we, we like to position ourselves using a very well, well-known construct of the, the CIA security triangle, the C standing for confidentiality, the I for integrity, and the A for availability. Cybersecurity professionals, you know, remember this from their textbooks. And if you take a look at how crowded each corner of that triangle is, you'll see that the confidentiality portion of that triangle is just overwhelmed with pretty much every cybersecurity vendor, more than a thousand, close to 2,000 vendors, which of course lends to confusion and fatigue on the part of the buyers. The availability angle, particularly with the era and the rise of cloud, is not as crowded, but there's lots of great solutions for keeping your data available if you know something either happens through natural disaster or you know malicious cyber damage to your data. There are great availability solutions from the old backup industry, if you will, and now the modern cloud version of that. But the integrity part of the triangle is a very, very lonely empty space because uh, apart from an innovator such as Tripwire about 15, 20 years ago, there's no other vendor you can name yet, you know, hopefully chain kids soon once we get our branding up. But that really is an underserved part of the market. And if we revert back to your 39% statistic of, of undetected attacks, we take a look at incredibly well-documented analyses. You know, Verizon does a fantastic job annually publishing the DBIR, the Data Breach Investigation Report. They look at hundreds of thousands. I think this year was 170,000 incidents. They reduce it to about 4,000 different kinds of attacks in this very painful eye chart that I love because it covers everything so succinctly. And what you observe in that eye chart 
is that, yes, confidentiality is breached by all the attacks. And yes, half the attacks can benefit like ransomware from having a good mirror of your data for availability to recover from. But also every single of those 4,000 styles of attacks 170,000 times last year breached integrity. And what we don't have in the industry is a modern version of the pioneering solution that Tripwire was because 20 years ago, the world was files, right? So if you managed to just closely monitor the integrity of files, you had a really great balance to your other antivirus solutions as the case might've been 20 years ago, maybe a network firewall 20 years ago, you know, and at least a backup of your data or an archive of your data. So that represented balance in cybersecurity 20 years ago. We're completely out of balance today. But if you were to reimagine a strong integrity solution today, you'd basically say the world has moved beyond files. You know, from a persistent basis, we have objects, we have buckets of objects and, you know, in a folder-like hierarchy. We have in-memory databases, so it's really important to have integrity for memory regions, not just persistent things. And of course, we don't want to have the user manage this because it can also be attacked uh, when it's a user-managed thing. We want this to be offered as a secure service to the user as opposed to having to have the user manage the integrity service themselves. And that reimagination of an integrity solution is now Chainkit Integrity as a Service. It applies to all these environments, and we've actually chosen to make it simple for customers to consume this by make basically you know, uh, going through the typical overwhelmed fatigue scenario where we have empathy for our buyers, not forcing them to replace something that already works, no matter how much better we are, not forcing them to learn something net new, which re requires quite a bit of investment of time, which is the most precious resource now, but simply taking tools they already have namely Splunk and or Elasticsearch, and adding on to those tools, writing effectively apps for those platforms and exposing all that integrity value initially to those ubiquitous, widely deployed tools, and then being able to extend that as necessary to other security monitoring solutions or other data pipelines, quite frankly, or just network segments or systems, hosts, and apps. So the extensibility is just a fantastic opportunity for our value-added distribution channel to do consulting, systems integration, support, and audits on, but out of the box, just like a mobile app experience, you can go to the respective app marketplaces for Splunk Elastic, download the apps, create your Chainkit account, and you're already in the free tier for 30 days to see exactly how much tampering is going on in your environment, help pass the next compliance audit, or God forbid, if you're in, in, in the middle of an incident response, at least be able to protect the integrity of the investigation and perhaps if you were lucky enough to have Chainkit before the incident occurred, you've got some fantastically complete, authentic artifacts now to investigate and, and, and rapidly accelerate the pace of your investigation and response. Wow. I remember uh, the whole confidentiality, integrity, availability message in, in sort of CIA. I remember turning up at a, a lecture once at high school and uh, sitting there going, oh, my God, they're going to tell us about the CIA? What are the Americans doing? <laughs> Um, but it was a math professor who had uh, done a computer science degree, and I think he came from a Multics background pre-Unix. And one of the first things he did was beat this into us, even though we were programming on the likes of, you know, Apple IIEs or, or, or Commodore PET computers. And um, it was interesting because I remember getting my first couple of jobs, and, and like I was just, this is one of the first things I used to put on the tables. Like, okay, and how we're going to apply the CIA? And people were like, what? And, and if they hadn't been through that rigorous pummeling in their brain of like, this is so important. It was so foreign to them, I used to just beat my head against the wall going, how do you not know this? And they're like, how do you know this, right? And I'm like, well, I was very lucky. I had a great dude who uh, 
who taught me this at high school. But um, I, I guess one of the things that I'd sort of like to pivot to now is kind of yeah, the next steps, because I guess you know, you, you, you've positioned this whole concept very, very clearly as to the risk and the business need and the business challenge. Uh, and, and the technology approach you've taken to this, and, and there's no no secret of the uh, the impact potentially that could happen, as as your website says, don't be the next front page headline. But I mean, where to from here as far as next steps go? I mean, you talked about logs. I think now you sort of described those audit trails, and I think you described them as sort of the lifeblood of, of cyber defence. That uh, you know m- most organisations only have logs. Um, and and I think there's been a big change in that space as well, right? And when we think about the shift from monolithic systems to virtualization to cloud and then you know, containers, whether it's Docker or others. We've had sort of you know, BSD jails and virtualization and certainly LPARs in the mainframe world for decades, but I think they've gone to a whole new level now that we hadn't anticipated where microservices are sort of, you know, um, non-permanent environments that are sort of you know, driven by API economies where a service request gets made, something gets instantiated, it could be a container with some business logic, it runs some business logic, it gets access to data, it produces some logging somewhere. The day of having a log file server or a syslog server is kind of gone. <clears throat> and in many cases, I see developers where they're refactoring code and they're like, eh, I don't need the logs, I put it into a database, I've got the transaction report. And I sit there searching my head going, well, yeah, but that's okay, but what about your single source of truth on on what actually happened? Like, what if I change the database to say something else happened? And they're like, huh? <laughs> you know. Um, where to from here as far as sort of the next key steps? Because one of the things I'd love people to be able to do is sort of take away some of these things that you're talking about and almost put them into actionable takeaways as in, okay, a conversation from boardroom down as to we only have logs, what do we need to do to sort of to change the way we approach this? And if our logs are sort of our our last line of defense from cybersecurity risks and cyber defense, what what does that actually mean and how do we change the way we behave around this? What are your thoughts on kind of the next key steps? Where are we going and what are some of the big things that are going to be changing this landscape? I would say the two key paths are one product roadmap, which we could spend endless time on, but I'll just summarize. And then, of course, the ecosystems, which are key. Now, on the roadmap front, it's clear that we, we have the potential to take, for example, the very popular zero trust concept and extended far beyond its initial use cases. Today, I, I love zero trust. You know, it epitomizes the old Reagan quote of trust, but verify, but puts it in a proper order, verify before trust. And that's done very, very well, clearly, for managing devices, particularly in the COVID era, the variety of unsecured devices we're using to access regulated information that should be secure. You know, always verify the device, verify the identity uh, that's consuming the device at any given time. And verify, you know, or create a customized sort of micro-targeted network segment just between the user, the device, and the actual back-end resource they're requesting. But Zero Trust version 1, or the first generation, stops there. And again, I have an inquisitive mind, so my mind immediately goes to, okay, so I've got this verified tunnel from my device to this back-end resource. Let's say it's my email. Let's say it's my payroll database. Let's say it's my marketing data. Why am I trusting that back-end? You know, what process has that backend gone through to know that the security certificate that it's using is an authentic one that's validating me or has it been spoofed, that the host hasn't been compromised by numerous known vulnerabilities, that the database itself, just the databases before the transaction log, hasn't been tampered with by a DBA that got bribed by organized crime. So these are all sorts of questions that need to continue the zero trust conversation that we need to continue to to ask. There is actually a whole category, so Forrester and uh, John Kindervag and Dr. Chase Cunningham originated that, and Chase is still over at Forrester. 
he's created this wonderful new definition called ZTX for zero trust extended. So I would love to see the ZTX, you know, product roadmaps from all vendors, including ourselves, be filled out and, and have a lot of discussions around that. But on the ecosystem and community side, there's just a lot of fundamental fundamental work, I should say, that we need to do with various communities, such as the auditor community, the ISO auditors, the NIST auditors, the SOC2 auditors, and of course, you know, the business level auditors, whether it's PCI regulation, whether it's uh, high trust and HIPAA in the United States for healthcare. There's so many audit communities that we need to educate on the realities of, of anti-forensic tampering techniques, which are the ones that are invisible, that let the attackers operate with impunity. Uh, and then, of course, there's the forensics community I mentioned earlier on. I think educating on the ability to not just protect the integrity of their investigations, but to proactively form these public-private sector partnerships where you're having law enforcement or drug enforcement, as the case may be, with the opioid crisis. You have all these agencies actually partner with the private sector and, and educate them on the value of being prepared for, for an investigation, which is statistically inevitable for every organization, and to be able to conduct those investigations, again, more quickly, more thoroughly, come up with better conclusions so that the, the, the other massive investment you've made in cybersecurity can pay off versus leaving you exposed and unprepared for years at a time as you find out what happens and hope you know, you're not being attacked again while you figure that out. It's interesting, isn't it? I, you know, we've gone through some cycles just in organizations over the last sort of couple of decades where you know, there was a perception that technology was getting better and security invariably was getting as better as a result as opposed to you know, becoming more complex and, and, and with higher risks, particularly in the gaps where they overlap and integrate. And you know, CIOs kind of lost their seat in the boardroom and, and CISOs were barely even getting a, an audience. I'm now seeing boards that I sit on where you know, we're, we're advising the boards to bring not just the CIO back to the table, but the CISO to the table and the chief risk officer and chief data officer for all these reasons so that there is actually a voice in the organization at board level who is having this conversation and making sure that these things are on the standard agenda items that are standing from month to month, quarter to quarter. So that this isn't just a tick in the box, as you said, with a, you know, an ISO 27001 styled uh, uh, you know, list of things just to check, but it's actually now part of the language and vernacular that people are talking about in the hallways every day. I wonder if I could maybe throw a, a final question at you uh, before we wrap up. I, um, you, know, you shared some amazing insights into kind of some of the incidents that have come about of late and how we sort of got to some of these and certainly some great thinking around how we need to approach this and some of the... I guess the cultural shift that we need to sort of see about the attitudes towards what cybersecurity and cyber breaches mean to an organization. But over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, if it's okay as a final question to you, where are we going? What's coming over the horizon? You know, what are the, what are the big things that people should be talking about at their boardroom level and down uh, to the water callers and, and the front desk that they should be trying to action? You know, I think there's so many big broad brushstrokes, but are there any sort of key things that really jump out at you that, would make a significant difference uh, with regard to what's coming over the horizon. Because we think about the shift, you know, we've pivoted to work from home, now we're trying to figure out what is the new normal. And I, I dialed into something yesterday uh, with, with the Asia Society where they're talking about, um, their policy group, we're talking about um, you know, the shift back to the new unnormal um, because we didn't know what the new normal was and the impact of business. From a security con context, I guess, you know, over the next 12 to 18 months with the the attempt to pivot back from work to home to something else, and a lot of companies aren't going back to the offices and complete, the, the shift to sort of more mobile and some of the big impacts that likes of 5G and IoT are going to bring to us, 
what do you see is coming over the horizon the next 12 to 18 months that people should be thinking about and actively talking about now to action and, and, and really get ahead of the game? Yeah, my, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, the future is here, but it's unevenly distributed. So we, we've seen that with income gaps, which, you know, COVID, unfortunately, is accelerating the expansion of as opposed to the reduction of. But from a business perspective, I think uh, it's it's a little bit by context of, you know, where you are in your business. So if you're a very, very large organization, there's absolutely career risk or, or even, you know, liability, particularly in the U.S., for board members if uh, to the points we were making just before – if you don't have proper corporate governance around managing the actual severity of your cyber risk. And so it's not just having the CIO and the CISO at the table for regular C-level executive meetings. It's absolutely having them deliver progress reports on these preparations we discussed to the board, at least on an annual basis. So there's a lot of career and there's a lot of high-end liability risk for large organizations. Unfortunately, it just gets more acute and more severe as we go down. So for medium and large organizations, it really is an existential crisis right now. What COVID is doing is it's forcing you to address these risks head on. And those small and, and medium businesses that do are going to be able to survive. But the ones that decide it's below the line from an investment perspective are running an incredibly r- risk of effectively being ransomware out of business at the simplest level or just simply not being able to procure and maintain cybersecurity insurance and, and then not being able to survive ransomware incidents. And, and this is why I'm a big proponent of you know, being able to interview and, and absolutely as a, as a must-have implement a relationship with a managed security provider or managed security service provider because if you can't make those investments as a small and medium business, that's justifiable. But you can't wish the whisk away, right? Hope is not a strategy. So you absolutely have to have a business partner in place, a supplier, a security, you know, service provider of some kind that can manage that risk for you at the appropriate cost down to what your business can tolerate. And, and cyber insurance security, you know, cybersecurity insurance or just cyber insurance is a key part of that, that equation. You know, you have to have that. Premiums are now, you know, exceeding the ability of small and medium businesses to be able to reach. And so having an active you know, a very, very thorough cybersecurity strategy that an insurer could underwrite is actually something that can narrow that that gap that we're seeing COVID exacerbate. Hmm, I love that. The classic uh, failure plan is a plan to fail. And um, I, I think uh, if, if, if there's one key thing that comes out of that, it, more than anything, is just get the conversation started sooner than later. You know? and, and I love the, the point you highlighted there, which I'll paraphrase to the effect that um, – you know, most organizations should assume that they are not experts in cybersecurity. In effect, uh, you know, if you're a bank, be a bank and don't try and be a security company. Bring somebody like Chainkit or somebody on board to help you through that journey. Um, one final question then. Uh, one of the things that people often follow up with me uh, and, and remind me that I should ask my guests is how to reach out and get in contact. How, do, how should people reach out and, and, and get a conversation going with yourself and your team? And, and obviously, uh, you know, I've got a particular interest in Australia. I know you've got a, a new director of strategy and go to market here in, in the Australian New Zealand space. But uh, for listeners who are keen to have a conversation with you uh, now that they're all pumped up about the issues and risks that might, might be facing themselves and their organization, their roles, uh, how, would, how should they reach out to yourself, your organization, the team, and just get that conversation started? Please, you know, reach out to us uh, via either the website, via social media. So we're, we're at the obvious places, chainkit.com, chainkit on LinkedIn, chainkit on Twitter. Um, I'm available as well, uh, info or, or uh, sales at chainkit.com will reach me and, and our team right away. 
those are the conventional avenues. And, and I would actually actively encourage social media, you know, whichever you prefer, because I think that's a great way. That's where I found actually some of my best peers, business partners, customers, is just engaging on, on key topics of the day, cybersecurity, insurance, as the case may be, policy topics, and, uh, and just finding out, you know, mutually aligned interests where we can obviously collaborate in, in any kind of relationship. So I'd encourage that. Jesse and Aaron in Australia are part of markets we're serving directly. We've chosen to not just be very, very broad, but we serve the West Coast of the U.S. We serve uh, the Midwest in the U.S. We serve the federal government areas in the U.S. We're presently not directly uh, servicing European customers, but we plan to change that soon. Uh, but we've decided to actually have a basis both in a place that invests proactively in security, such as Singapore, and my absolute favorite global early adopter market, which is Australia and New Zealand, which is why I'm so happy that you know both Jesse and Aaron are on board. Because throughout my entire IT career, whether it was selling databases, whether it was selling storage, or, or whether it was focusing on machine learning or, or cybersecurity, I found some of the most enthusiastic large early adopters in the ANC marketplace, and I'm looking forward to helping pioneer or re reinvigorate the entire integrity corner of the CAA triangle from a cybersecurity perspective in Australia first. Awesome. Well, uh, Val, we, we are looking forward to having you in Australia, and it'd be great to get you on camera when you're here, and uh, I'm sure Jesse, like myself, will find a good reason to take you out for a nice <laughs> meal and a good Australian wine. Um, Val, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on the show and spend an hour with you. It's just been so insightful to kind of not just get to know you personally better for our audience, but also kind of just, you know, that interesting take on the strategic focus rather than the re reactive focus. And so for listeners, jump on chainkit.com and have a look there. There's some amazing resources. Uh, go and have a look under slash team. Uh, they've got some great stuff around their blog. Uh, and, and there's also under resources, I remember there's a success story that we won't name the brand for, but you'll see they're an amazing global organization that they've worked with to, to go through a, a range of key steps to ensure that they are in a good, healthy position and, and avoid potential risks in the future. Uh, Val, it's been an absolute pleasure. We look forward to having you on the show again soon. We maybe do a follow-up on kind of the next steps for people who uh, maybe have some success stories and how they've gone about it and delve into the, the details of how those journeys took place and what the outcomes were. But uh, in the meantime, stay safe. It's been uh, a real pleasure and I really appreciate your time and uh, hope you have a great afternoon. Likewise, Des. I can't wait till the next time. <laughs>